Hello, my friends, and everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible and the book of Exodus. Real quick, next week, we're going to take a break on Monday. The first episode next week is actually going to be a special episode where we're going to have a digital double chair. I'm super excited. Don't want to give any spoilers away, so be on the lookout for that. But today, we are going through Exodus chapters 13 through 15. We're going to encounter some texts that some critics actually use to suggest that God wanted child sacrifice. We're going to see God's final act of supernatural intervention as God saves Israel from Egypt one last time. And and then we're going to see this pattern that begins to develop between God's people and God himself that might actually be maybe hit a little too close to home for some of us. Yeah, the Bible's about to get very real. We might get a little bit colorful. So buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. Okay, Exodus chapters 13 through 15. We start out as Israel is just leaving Egypt. Remember the the plague of the death of the firstborn, all the land of Egypt. They painted sheep's blood over the doorposts in Goshen, where all the Israelites were, to protect them. This protective sacrifice, also known as the Passover sacrifice. They are leaving Egypt in midnight and at midnight and they are beginning to wander through the land like wait is this real what's happening what are we doing are we actually free and and this kind of like hang on is this real anybody know what that's like so we get into chapter 13 and as they're leaving egypt kind of there's this like abrupt interruption and we actually see this a few times in the book of Egypt in the book of Exodus and a few other times throughout the Old Testament where the author seems to like abruptly add and interrupt the story with some like weird obscure information we've already seen it once a little bit but here we see it again Israel is leaving Egypt and the author says okay so what I want you guys to do is we're going to consecrate the firstborn of everything that opens the womb, whether it's a man, well, excuse me, whether it's a human being giving birth, so men don't give birth, right? Um, Or it's an animal. So either way, the first thing that opens a womb is the term is the language used here. The first thing to be born from a female is going to be consecrated. And the word consecrated means to be treated as sacred. Okay, so the first two verses, kind of this weird, hey, by the way, while you're leaving Egypt, firstborn man or woman, excuse me, man or beast, uh, consecrated to God, treated as sacred. And, And then it's just kind of like left there. Now, keep in mind, there are probably some first time mothers on this Exodus journey, right? For humans and for animals. And they're going to give birth at some point during this liberation. And so it it feels abrupt and interrupting, but there's also like a place for it because it's like, hey, by the way, we want to establish this pattern right now before we get into any other routines. Firstborn, everything consecrated to the Lord. 
But then there's this other like abrupt interruption and it's verses three through 16, I think. And it's like, okay, now here are some details about how you're going to celebrate the Passover. We already know that God established details about you're going every year during the festival of Passover, you're going to sacrifice a lamb, drain its blood. You're going to roast the lamb. You're going to eat the lamb. You're going to, there are some like details. And then he adds here, you're also going to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Once a year, you're going to have a week long remembrance of Passover. Very specifically, sacrifice of the lamb, unleavened bread. And these are two Um, visual representations of and reminders of two very different qualities of what God did at the Passover. The sacrificial lamb is the protective sacrifice. It was the sacrifice that protected the people, the firstborn, right? And and then the leavened bread, unleavened bread, excuse me, was, but anybody remember what that symbolized? It was the immediate and um, complete deliverance and salvation. God's deliverance, his salvation is immediate. It's not delayed. It's not uh, when I feel like it. Hey, that sounds great, but I'll let you know when I'm ready. No, no, no. It's now. Okay, so then there are these details for a handful of verses about how to incorporate unleavened bread into the celebration. And some scholars actually are going to say that Israel has already had a long-standing tradition of incorporating unleavened bread into their festivals. I don't know what kind of festivals they had as slaves, but here, yes, it's symbolic. And it's also taking something that's part of their culture and incorporating it into this remembrance of what God has done for them. Okay. Then, and this is where things start to get really sticky, especially for critics of the Bible, scholars who kind of look at the Bible as, oh, it's just a religious text for the cult of Yahweh. There's nothing special about them. They're just like every other cult that has ever existed in the world. And and this is a, a big kind of like fundamental part of where they, they get those arguments to try and suggest that those who worship and follow Yahweh are just a cult. Because in verses 11 through 17, oh, earlier I said 3 through 16, it, those verses for the leaven bread were 3 through 10. But here, 11 through 17, we actually get more details about what it means to treat as consecrated the firstborn of people and the firstborn of animals. Um, It says very specifically to sacrifice the animals as part of that consecration process. And this is treating the animal as sacred, as as in like it belongs to God. There's some divine nature to it that is beyond just the normal humdrum, boring, uh, regular things that go on on this world, there's something divine about this. So let's give it to God. Let's dedicate it to God. And if it's an animal, it needs to be sacrificed. And because of this language, scholars who actively look for ways to treat the Bible as nothing more than any other cult of the ancient world will 
tie this word sacrifice used for the animals that are being consecrated. And they'll say, this is the way God also wants to treat the sons, the children of the firstborn children of people, because verses one and two are kind of like this independent section. And so they'll say, that's what God wanted his people to do when consecrating animals and people, firstborn. And the argument that is presented here is that the faith, the religion of the Israelites was very archaic in its origins and evolved to be better in that it started with this requirement of child sacrifice. The firstborn must be sacrificed and only later did they want to like change this and and distance themselves from this idea of child sacrifice. The problem that anyone who reads the Bible can see that there isn't ever actually anyone in the Bible who sacrifices their child as an act of worship to Yahweh. Remember, the Bible does include nasty, gnarly things that God does not approve of, but they simply happen to be part of the story that he's involved in. It happens to be part of the culture or the people that he's interacting with. Not that he's endorsing it, polygamy, rape, abuse, all these things, right? We do see a couple of instances in scripture where people participate in child sacrifice. It's never, however, as an act or a response to worshiping Yahweh God. We see it done as an act of worshiping other pagan gods or as rebellion against God or devoting someone's self to anything other than God. But it's never ever in scripture practiced as an act of worshiping Yahweh. It is, however, repeatedly condemned throughout scripture. Do not offer your children as sacrifices as the other nations do these things, right? Referring to these other pagan gods that are worshiped in this way. And so I want us to be fair because I think it is responsible for us to take something that's been criticized and take a step back and say, okay, why is this? What is there? Is there substance there? I think it's it's valuable for someone who believes the Bible to take a step back and say, well, Are they right? Are they true? Or can we recognize that there are some inconsistencies in their argument? And we just want to kind of create the space, right? Because I'm just a dumb Christian trying to figure this out. And I want to see the whole picture as I would encourage anyone reading the Bible to try and do reasonably. And the Bible does not endorse this idea of child sacrifice or or the idea that this religion evolved from archaic paganistic practices into something a little bit better. And we see that in the verses 11 through 17, that they really do begin to unpack a very clear picture that this is not the, that you do not treat a child the same way you treat an animal. But instead of sacrificing the child, there is this command that you redeem the child. And so some scholars will argue, well, it's optional. You can either sacrifice the child or you can redeem it, right? And so that's kind of where this thought process language comes from. But the instructions here clearly say, sacrifice the animal, and it's this command, redeem the child. And then there's this really weird, like, I don't know why it's in there, but it says you can redeem a donkey. 
Like it's the only animal out of all of them that can be redeemed. It says, hey, if, if you want to save your donkey, you can sacrifice a lamb instead of the donkey. But it's the only animal. It's weird. So I don't know if it has this like weird connection with something else that I'm unfamiliar with or like maybe, you know, Jesus rides a donkey during his triumphal entry um, during his time here on earth. So I don't know if it has something to do with that. I don't know. It's just weird. Okay. But it does say redeem the children. And then later in Deuteronomy, it actually gives like some alternatives to redeeming the child with, um, if you can't afford a lamb here are some like alternatives for lower income families. So there's that, but this is not a baby dedication, especially in the terms that we think of where it's like mom and dad bring the baby to church and they bring it to the front of the congregation. We commit to raising this baby like, uh, you know, a God fearing believer. This is very different. It is instructions to clearly say, no, every firstborn child, and maybe it's just son. There's some linguistic things in here. Every firstborn must be redeemed by sacrificing an animal. So that when your kids ask you, why do we do this? It is a year long, every day of the year remembrance that says, well, this is why we do it because God protected us from his wrath. God gave us a protection, a protective sacrifice from his judgment that is deserved by everyone who rebels against God, right? That's what Egypt was doing. The gods of Egypt rebelling against God. And we're going to see that the Israelites aren't any different. And the Bible kind of gives us a clear picture uh, that nobody is any different. Each person is in some sort of rebellion against God in a variety of different ways. And so this is why you do the Passover celebration meal once a year for a week. And by the way, you eat unleavened bread for a week long. It's not like one meal. Oh yeah, unleavened bread. No, it's every day for seven days. Don't forget God's deliverance is immediate. And then there's this year long practice that all year long, every year, whenever someone first opens the womb, sacrifice or redemption, so that it's this constant reminder that's just ingrained in the minds of the people. God is offering protection. God protects us from the ways that we cause damage to our relationship with God, the ways that the Israelites continue to rebel and reject God, which they're going to do in very short order. So God is leading them out of Egypt. Again, that, that like weird instructions, here's what you're going to do because people will probably be giving birth not in the not-too-distant future. So make sure that you're already starting to practice this habit. While God is leading them, it says that he did not lead them by the northern path that they could have taken. So uh, Egypt is in like the northeastern part of Africa, and then if you keep going north and east, you're actually going to get to where Egypt the, the Israelites finally settled down the land of Egypt, which is modern day is Israel where the Egyptian, oh my gosh, the Israelites will land in modern day Israel. That's where they're going. But it says that God did not take them by the Northern path, even though it was the fastest route, because there is a group of people stationed right there between Egypt and where Israel is going to be located called the Philistines. The Philistines. 
And they are constantly at war with Egypt. And so there's this like embattlement, this war ready people group right there. And God says, I'm not going to take them that way because I know if they see conflict, they're going to immediately run back to Egypt. Because remember, Although they were slaves in Egypt, because they were a valuable commodity to Egypt, Egypt protected them from all the other warring nations. So on some level, right, they're like, well, at least we'll be safe there. That's why they didn't go in that direction. So they're wandering a little bit. And while they're following God, the Bible says that God led them as though he were a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this isn't like a little candlestick that's just kind of floating in front of Moses as they lead. I mean, a pillar, right? Like a sand tornado of cloud during the day and fire by night. He's leading him. And this is another picture that we see of God manifesting his person. Remember when Moses encountered God as the at, in the flaming bush, it said the flame appeared in the bush and the angel of God spoke. Here and in the next chapter, we actually see that it's described as both a pillar and the angel of God, but almost as two different independent things. And so again, we see an example here of the two powers the father and son, who much later we, we kind of come to understand this is who they are, the father and the son working in tandem as the pillar and the angel. You know, when, when Moses and Aaron told Pharaoh, let my people go, the original instruction was, we're going to go three days into the wilderness, a three days journey. We're going to make sacrifices and we're going to worship God. If you go back even farther than that, God told Moses, I want you to bring the people of Israel. You're going to come back here to Sinai if you remember, way back in the beginning of Exodus, and you're going to make sacrifices and worship here at Sinai. So is Sinai a three days journey? Is that where God is leading them? What's happening? There's some inconsistent things that they don't go directly to Sinai. We don't necessarily see them making sacrifices and worshiping God within the first three days. So something is happening that's maybe it was just to confuse Pharaoh to start the ball rolling or whatever, but God is leading them. And, and he tells Moses, okay, we're not going to go the fast route. We're not going to go the easy route. In fact, what I'm going to have you do is lead the people. will follow the pillar to a place. That's actually a really strategically horrible place to set up. He's going to lead them so that they are between a narrow mountain pass and a large body of water. I'm not a scholar, but I know some scholars really try and work hard to, to understand what this body of water is. Is this the Red Sea? It's also called the Reed Sea. But then there's like confusing language about they wind up much later at the Red Sea. So we're not even going to get into which sea it is specifically, but it's a large body of water that leaves them with no escape if something were to come through the mountain pass. However long they've been gone, it's been more than what Pharaoh thought they should be gone or what he was convinced they would be gone. And he says, why haven't they come back yet? They're supposed to come back. Pharaoh's heart is 
hardened and he gets really pissed off and he says, I can't believe I let them go. For whatever reason, he thinks in his mind it's justifiable to say we need to go get them back. And so what does he do? He, he gets his chariots and his army all geared up and they set out for Israel because the scouts come back and they say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, we found them. They're stuck in this like really horrible strategic location with water on one side and they're trapped by a mountain on the other. So Pharaoh's like, I've got them now. And I don't know if he sets out to like capture them and bring them back to be slaves or if he's just like, if, if I can't have them, no one can. And then he's just going to kill them. But he sets out, and as the Israelites are kind of hanging out by the sea, you know, they're just kind of like taking a breather, I guess. They don't know what they're doing there. They see up on the mountain crest coming over the top this, you know, heavily plated army, and they recognize, oh, that's the army of Egypt. The shit is about to hit the fan. Moses, you bastard, you screwed us over on this one. We told you just leave us alone. Now we're going to be murdered out here in the wilderness. We knew we weren't, this wasn't going to end well. We knew something was going to happen. We knew this was too good to be true. Damn it, Moses. And, and Moses very politely basically says, shut up, quit your bitching and your moaning. God, what, what has God done to prove that he's good enough, that he's powerful enough to take care of you? Just shut up. But while they're raging and, and crying out, screaming at Moses, shaking their fist at the heavens, the, the Midrash, which is actually a Jewish tradition, Jewish commentary says that while they're in a panic, two men actually rush into the sea behind them and try to swim for their lives because they aren't relying on God. And when they try to act before God moves, it says they actually drowned because they were trying to escape on their own power. And during the panic, God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go extend your staff over the sea. And as Moses walks towards the edge of the water and extends his staff, the pillar of cloud, because I think it's daytime at this point, moves from in front of them, which is at the sea, to behind them so that the pillar of God is between Israel and this encroaching army of Egypt. Moses extends his staff and just like in the Ten Commandments, you've seen it before, the water parts and it builds up as these like walls on either side and this massive dry path forms in the middle of this body of water wide enough for their carriages and, and their carts and their animals and their whole families to cross, the Bible says, on dry ground. So Israel, with the pillar of cloud behind them, the angel of God behind them, they make their way through the sea on dry ground. And this, if you haven't seen The Prince of Egypt, oh, it's a really cool scene. I highly recommend check it out. They make their way through to the other side. The Bible says on dry ground. The pillar of God moves, goes back, rejoins is the Israelites on the other side and Egypt, the Egyptians and Pharaoh's with them, by the way, he says, now's our chance. Let's go get them. So they rush into this path that's made in the middle of the sea. And what's really interesting, I think is it says their wheel, the wheels of their chariots 
clogged, which kind of sounds like to me that it was dry for the Israelites, but wet, muddy and clumpy for the Egyptians. And they're trying, they get thrown, they get thrown into a panic now. They're like, oh, the God of the Israelites is actually actively waging war against us. At this point, whatever natural explanations they had for the plagues, and maybe you've seen it on like PBS or the History Channel or something like that, right? Where there's a special that says, here are some natural explanations that could potentially explain the plagues of of Exodus without it necessarily being a supernatural act of God. And I've actually seen some also try to explain how Uh, a natural occurrence of the parting of a body of water could have occurred. I'm not too convinced neither were the Egyptians or the rest of the world at this time, because what happens is as they panic and try to flee, they realize whatever coincidences we thought the plagues were. Now we know for sure this is the God of Israel and he is actively warring against us and and they get clogged they cannot retreat and the walls of water crash on them it says everyone dies and pharaoh was even swept away some scholars say pharaoh didn't die and that has to do with some dates and things that we're we're not going to get into on dumb christian cuz we're not that smart i'm not that smart <clears throat> but it just says pharaoh was swept away And now the rest of Egypt knows without any doubt Yahweh God is God. And rumor spreads across all of the known world at that time. All the plagues that Egypt endured, the way that Israel crossed through the Red Sea, they don't have any military, they don't have boats, they don't have any defenses against the Egyptian army, who, by the way, has been waging war against the Philistines, trying to get into the Canaanite region where the Israelites are headed. So this is like huge. It breaks the internet of the ancient world. Have you heard about this deliverance that the God of Israel gave them? They get to the other side. The sea collapses in on itself. They are saved from Egypt and they bust out in freestyle worship of God. Moses starts singing and then Israel starts joining him and singing this song. They're just worshipful. They're like, wow, God is amazing. Maybe they also had some natural coincidental explanations for all the plagues that had occurred. But at this point, all that is thrown out the window. How do you, how else do you explain a sea being parted and your enemy being capsized on? This has got to be none other than the one true God. And so they start worshiping Miriam, Moses's sister. She starts worshiping and singing. And for three days, they're following this pillar and they're just like, they're free. No one's chasing us. Nothing's going to happen. Wow. We are free. You know, they're taking their steps slowly, but they can't help but just worship because, wow, our God really pulled through. He kept his promise to Abraham. That's amazing. They travel and worship for three days until they get to this land that's kind of filled with a variety of lakes. And and they go to drink the water and it's bitter. So it's called Mara. And, and 
remember, names are really, really important. They have significant meanings. They named it Mara because that means bitterness. And that's actually the root for Mary and Mara. And so all these like, yeah, connected things there. But they name it Mara. It's bitter. It's undrinkable. And what happens? Three days after God saves them from this encroaching army, the attack on the Egyptians with this incredible supernatural act, they come to water it's, and that they can't drink. And this minor inconvenience flips the switch and they start cursing Moses, shaking their fists at God. Why did you bring us out here? We don't have water to drink. And don't it always seem to go that regardless of how good things are going, the instant something inconveniences humans, we turn. Well, this is worthless. And we begin to see a pattern here. We, we've seen a little bit, right, when, the play, when, when they first believed that God was going to use Moses to deliver them. And then, you know, Pharaoh increased the workload. They turned and they flipped. They did it again at the sea, and now they're doing it again here. This pattern just continues. But we also see the beginning of a pattern of God's grace for these people who don't trust him, who re, who f- turn on a dime, and they, you know, wow, God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Wait, now this, I take it all back. I wish we were back in Egypt. And we're going to see that attitude repeated throughout the book of Exodus. But here it is. Why did you bring us out here to die? We don't have any water. And yet God demonstrates his character. And and keep in mind, like they don't know who this God is very well. They've heard stories about Yahweh, the God of Abraham. They're beginning to discover that this God is unlike the Egyptian gods, but there's some weird sense of like entitlement and disappointment in Yahweh every time like life happens. And, And in here, they're complaining and yet God is going to give them drinkable water Anyway, and when I read stories like this, I can't help but wonder, like, what would have been a better way for them to respond? And, and so I don't, we're not going to get into that, but that's just a thought that I have. Like, what, what was the, what could have been the right way to respond after everything they just witnessed and experienced? I don't know. But sure enough, God tells Moses, gives him some instructions on how to miraculously, supernaturally fix the water. He does so. It's drinkable. They finally settle down. They're all getting enough to drink. But this isn't going to last very long because quickly they're going to decide they don't have enough to eat. But that is going to be saved for next time. Just a reminder, next week, Monday, the episode's going to be different. we got a special guest uh, that I'm really excited to share with you guys. So be on the lookout for that. And then we will get into Exodus once again on Wednesday, exploring uh, chapters 16 and beyond. And we'll catch you in the next one. I love you guys. Oh, 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 oh,